HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we are just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. And you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today we're going to be talking about pesticides, substances that play a huge role in our agricultural system and impact farmers, farm workers, eaters, the environment in really complex, important ways. My guest is Eric Olson, an attorney and the Senior Director of Health and Food at the NRDC, who works specifically on agriculture and pesticides, among many other things. Eric, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks so much for having me. I was reading um, your list of topics that you cover at NRDC, and it was a pretty long list. Well, we have a pretty broad program in our health and food program, so it includes pesticides and agricultural issues, but we also work on drinking water and more broadly on toxic chemicals and food issues. So certainly a big piece of what we try to do is protect the public and protect the environment from toxic chemicals like pesticides, Mm -hmm. but we have a broader portfolio than that. Right. And you've been working on issues related to pesticides for a very long time, is that right? That's right. I actually started my career as a lowly first-line staff person at EPA when I was still in college in the pesticide office, so that was many years ago. What what did that job look like? Well, it was interesting because it was so many years ago that EPA had only been created less than 10 years before I started there, and it had the pesticide office actually originally was part of the uh, Department of Agriculture. And 
a lot of the staff initially at the pesticide office came from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which may explain a lot because huh. there is a lot of sort of agricultural DNA at EPA's pesticide office. It's long been sort of a friend of the agrochemical industry and of agribusiness. Right. Huh, that's that's interesting. I didn't realize that they moved it. Um, do you know what the impetus was for, like, how did, how did they actually end up moving it to EPA? Well, it was actually when EPA was created by President Nixon ah, okay. in 1970. They transferred functions from the U.S. Department of Agriculture to the newly created EPA. Got it. Um, and parts of, parts of EPA were created from other agencies, too. Got it. Okay. Um, so I invited you on because there... It seems like lately there are just a lot of pesticides that have been in the news. Um, Chlorpyrifos, glyphosate, dicamba. Um, actually, am I saying that one right? Dicamba. 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 Mm-hmm. See, I knew I was going <laughs> to Before the, the show started, we were talking about um, chlorpyrifos and how that one is tricky to say. Um, I, I definitely think a lot of the pesticides, um, the companies must make the names complex and hard to pronounce just so that it's harder for people to talk about them. I, <laughs> I swear, like... Well, it's like taking an organic chemistry class when you look at the names of a lot of the pesticides. So right. a lot of them have these trade names, like chlorpyrifos is called Dursban mm. or Lorsban if you go into the agrochemical store to mm-hmm. buy it. So they don't usually call them by the long chemical name. Right, like glyphosate is Roundup. Um, and actually dicamba, I, I, I was prepping for this episode, I saw the... the commercial name for that which it was it extend or, yes yeah mm-hmm. I, I, that one i hadn't seen the actual commercial name i was surprised um okay so let's start with chlorpyrifos um first of all what is it if listeners haven't heard of it can you just explain what it's used for in farming well chlorpyrifos it's a very toxic chemical it's called an organophosphate um it was derived from the same chemistry um that was Uh, used by the Nazis actually during World War II as a toxic nerve gas. Um, Chlorpyrifos itself was not used that way, but this whole family of chemicals was developed in order for that. And it actually poisons people in a lot of the same ways that it poisons bugs. So it interferes with your nervous system. And what we know is that even though it's one of the most widely used insecticides in the United States, um, we now know that it's quite poisonous, especially to young children, to their developing brain. So many studies have been done, including at Columbia University School of Public Health, where they tracked moms that had been exposed to this chemical called chlorpyrifos. Um, and often it was being sprayed indoors in like public housing and in, hmm. in apartment buildings to kill um, cockroaches and other insects. Right. And unfortunately, moms and the young kids were getting exposed. So they actually tracked what the impacts of that chemical were on the brains of developing kids. And they saw a lot of the same kinds of effects as lead poisoning. So things like um, uh, IQ loss, things like uh, interference with with how the kids behaved, um, all sorts of learning problems that developed as a result of it. And now that study has been tracked for years and repeated in other locations. So we know it's quite dangerous to the developing brain of young children. Right. Um, and I mean, it seems like this one in particular, there's a lot of consensus in the scientific community about um, its danger, especially for children. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about, I'm curious, um, you know, the study you mentioned is looking at um, if the children are exposed to the pesticide 
in you know the actual chemical in their housing as um, opposed to like trace amounts in food is there research also on how um, the human body um, is affected by ingesting it there definitely is Um, so actually as a result of some of those studies EPA some years ago banned the indoor use Mm. of chlorpyrifos and that whole family of chemicals almost all uses of these organophosphates cannot be used indoors because the exposures are just staggeringly high. Um, you get lower doses usually from eating food that have been that's been sprayed with chlorpyrifos. But there are studies also showing that there are real risks from just eating the food that has been sprayed with chlorpyrifos or drinking water that has this chemical in it. So, in fact, EPA, under the previous administration, under the Obama administration, proposed to ban chlorpyrifos outright. And unfortunately, when uh, President Trump came in and brought in a lot of his cronies that were very close to the chemical industry, EPA decided not to finalize that ban. And we're still in litigation to try to move forward with a ban at the federal level. Right. I've been trying to follow the news about um, the ban and whether it is banned, it's not banned. It feels like it's kind of been like a game of ping pong. It it keeps changing, right? Um, And I was going to ask you what the current status is. So it's right now it's technically legal. The ban is not in place. Correct. It's currently technically legal, even though EPA proposed to ban it and was under a court order to finalize and go forward with a ban. EPA appealed it and has used every possible legal way to delay any action on it. And the latest decision they made a few months ago was that they weren't going to finalize the ban. So that's in court now, back in court after repeated pieces of litigation that I won't bore you to tears with, (laughs) but it's been going on for years now. We petitioned years ago to ban this stuff from agriculture, and EPA has now twice proposed to ban it, and unfortunately, EPA now is really dragging its feet and not finalizing that ban. Right. Um, and I, from what I understand, there was actually some research that the EPA did on its own that also found that uh, chlorpyrifos was incredibly toxic. Yes, right? there, there are multiple studies. So it's not just this Columbia study I yeah. mentioned. There, EPA did a survey looking at all sorts of data that had been collected on people that had been exposed, on animals that had been exposed, on what they call developmental neurotoxicity, which is um, as a young animal is developing, what are the impacts on the brain? Mm. They've even, um, the Columbia study did MRIs and they looked at the brains of kids that have been exposed and compared to them to kids that had not and showed very real clear impacts of the exposure. So I think the science is pretty ironclad that this is a serious problem and we need to get rid of it. But because of the power of the chemical industry, we continue to see it being sold. Right. And you know what? Actually, just back to the risks, um, again, we, one thing we didn't talk about is farm workers and farmers. And um, I, I think that a lot of times when we talk about the risks of pesticides, that gets left out. You know, because people, I mean, I understand it's like you're eating the food you're eating, and so you're worried about your health or the health of your child. Um, but I would imagine if children that were exposed to the spray indoors were getting very sick from it, that farm workers would be sort of on the front lines of exposure. Absolutely. The farm workers are very heavily exposed and, and their families often. Unfortunately, in some cases, farm workers are forced to bring their children out into the fields yeah. or right next to the fields, and they're regularly dosed with high levels of pesticides like 
chlorpyrifos and others. Yeah. And farm workers often are the really the canaries in the coal mine. They're the ones that are the most heavily exposed. They're often the most likely to be poisoned um, with acute poisoning. And obviously, um, when you're exposed at that level or when their kids are exposed at high levels, we can really see adverse impacts. So they actually had been part of the farm workers have been part of the litigation to try to ban this stuff. Oh, interesting. What kind of crops is chlorpyrifos generally used on? It's used on all sorts of fruits, vegetables, nuts, um, just a wide array. It's, it's one of the most heavily used insecticides in the United States. So you'll see it sprayed on apples. You'll see it sprayed on just about any kind of nut that you'll grow in California, for example. Mm. Uh, more is used in California than any other state, but it's used all over the country. Okay. So you're involved in this lawsuit um, against um, EPA over not enforcing the ban um, or not implementing the ban, I guess, because they, they technically like overturned it, right? Um, and I also saw um, several states were suing the EPA over it. Is that a separate lawsuit? Or That's is it, right. Yeah. Yeah. So there, is, there are several states that have also sued to try to ban chlorpyrifos. Um, so New York and California, for example, are part of this. Um, we've been working closely with states to try to move forward. So some states are actually starting to take action themselves, mm. including California, New York, Hawaii, and others are looking at, at moving forward with bans. So we can talk about that more. But I think the bottom line is that now that the federal government really has left a vacuum, they're not fixing this problem, states are feeling like they have to step in. Right. Um, and in terms of the lawsuit, like what, what's the status? How, what can we expect to see happen? Well, I won't go through all the procedure, but basically <laughs> what's happened is the court repeatedly told EPA they need to move forward with the ban. They started setting repeated deadlines for EPA to do that, and EPA kept trying to evade basically what the court was telling them to do, appealing and so on. Um, so the latest iteration is that EPA finally said, no, we're not going to ban this stuff. And so that is a final decision. We are now in litigation challenging that decision not to ban it. Okay. And there's no sense of like how long that will take? Uh, It could take a year or longer. Yeah. Okay. Um, And I mean, I am really interested in the the idea of state level um, action. Um, I wrote a story a while back about Hawaii Mm -hmm. when they passed that the ban. Um, and is Hawaii still the only state that has it in place and others are just in the works? Is that right? Or Well, Hawaii has adopted it, but it's not actually enforceable oh, right. quite yet. Not till like 2022? Right. Or, okay. So it'll be a couple of years before it's actually enforceable. Um, right now in New York, the state legislature has passed a ban. It's been sitting now for a couple of months oh. on the governor's desk. Huh. And we are hoping that uh, Governor Cuomo will sign the legislation to ban it. Right. We're puzzled as to why he has not signed it. Um, California also has started the process formally of banning it, but that could take as much as a year, okay. um, maybe a year and a half. So they formally initiated the process, sending letters to what are called the registrants. Those are the chemical companies that make it, saying, hey, we're going to ban this stuff. You have to make a case as to why we, we shouldn't. Okay. Um, so that process is formally started in California. Okay. So, yeah, the, those could be coming fairly soon. Um, and what when, state, when states pass bans against pesticides like that, um, 
could the federal government overturn them? Like, what kind of authority does the state have um, on a pesticide like that? Well, generally, the states are free to adopt stricter regulations of pesticides um, than the federal government does. So if a state like California or New York or Hawaii wants to ban a pesticide, they can. Um, there are now some real arguments between the federal EPA and California mm. on labels. So there's a pesticide called glyphosate or Roundup. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about that, um, too. We can <laughs> we'll get, get into there. this. but th- <laughs> So there is a lot of back and forth between the states and the federal government um, on labels for pesticides because EPA has to actually approve a label. Mm-hmm. So if a state wants to require a label change on a pesticide, then uh, the registrant or the maker of that pesticide has to get approval from EPA for it. Okay. Um, but but states, so the, there's a labeling kind of debate, but in general, like, you don't see a ban like the one that passed in Hawaii. You don't see that ever being overturned, like challenged. No, I don't no. think so. There, there's a Supreme Court case that actually allow that's pretty clear that the states are allowed to go forward with that. The chemical industry, one of their dreams is to preempt or tell states that they cannot be any stricter than the federal government. Mm-hmm. And there are some states that have actually adopted no more stringent than clauses in their environmental laws. But as a general matter, states are free to, to ban or restrict pesticides more strictly than the federal government does. Right. So I want to get to to Roundup or glyphosate, but that's going to be a whole conversation too. Before I go there, you've been, we've sort of been hitting on this, this question is standing out in this conversation, I think, which is like, why isn't the EPA regulating this pesticide that they found to be toxic, right? And I just want to ask you kind of a big picture question, which is, I guess, why? <laughs> why do you think that is? And also, um, I mean, I think all of us that have been following the news have been seeing that the EPA right now is just kind of rolling back all kinds of environmental regulations. And you're someone who's been working on this stuff for a really long time. And I'm just curious, if do, does it really feel like a very different moment at the EPA for, from your perspective? It does. Uh, unfortunately, we are, I really feel like the environment and public health is under siege right now. We're seeing unprecedented rollbacks of environmental regulation across the board of public health protections that have been on the books for years of proposed bans that had been developed after many years of study um, that are just being rolled back. Um, And it's not just in climate. It's not just in pesticides. It's not just in toxic chemicals. It's air pollution. It's environmental justice protections. And um, frankly, a lot of the staff, uh, the, the political staff that are being brought into EPA are former, chemi- former chemical industry executives. So it's a bad mix of policies that are really counterproductive and undermining public health and environmental protection and bringing in people re- literally um, from chemical companies, from pesticide companies to run the programs that... Um, basically uh, they're now rolling back because their former employers were unhappy with them and they're brought in specifically to eliminate some of the basic protections that we all take for granted. Right. Hasn't that that issue kind of always been in play, though, that there's sort of a revolving door between like the EPA and some of the chemical companies? Or, or it does feel like it's a lot worse now? I think it's worse. Yeah. Um, I think there's always been issues. The pesticide office, as I mentioned, it came out of the agriculture department. So 
Pestlite office has never been exactly a mecca for extremely strong regulation. I mean, it's always had a, a pretty industry-friendly bent. Mm -hmm. um, even though the laws give EPA a lot of authority um, to ban toxic pesticides, EPA has generally been very reluctant to use those laws under Democratic and Republican administrations. But I have to say, I think where we are now is unprecedented. The, the rollbacks and the sweeping nature of um, the efforts to undermine public health and environmental protections, I think is unprecedented. I did actually work in the general counsel's office at EPA under President Reagan mm. um, after uh, Ann Gorsuch was basically unceremoniously fired or pushed out. Um, so Mr. Ruckelshaus came in. He was the administrator, was a very strong administrator. But, uh, you know, we did see a lot of efforts in previous administrations to roll back some regulations. Mm -hmm. But I think the scope and the sweeping nature of the efforts now is unprecedented in my career. And I've been kicking around doing this for three and a half decades. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, all right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we will get to that conversation about Roundup and more with Eric from the NRDC. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly here on HRN. Every week, I conduct intimate interviews with the brilliant, powerful women in the food world. We discuss their lives, their careers, and the ways in which they navigate the world at large. You can find Speaking Broadly wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report. And I'm here with Eric Olson from the NRDC. We're talking about pesticides. Um, we spent a lot of the show before the break talking about chlorpyrifos. Um, and this is the part of the show where we normally do Farm Bill 5. There's a new segment that I introduced with a lot of fanfare just a few episodes ago. And then I got really busy this week and I did not prepare a section of the Farm Bill for you to read, Eric. So I'm very sorry. I'm really disappointed. <laughs> you won't be able to. I'll tell you, it would normally start with something like section 321A period quote, something like that. Um <laughs> However, um, I don't want to totally ignore the farm bill, so I thought I would just kind of give you a quick question, um, if you're up for it. Um, what's something about the farm bill that relates to the work that you do that you think a lot of people misunderstand? Well, you know, I think most people don't realize how sweeping the farm bill is. It has these provisions that most people would have no idea would be in a farm bill, things like um, nutrition programs, like the food stamp 
uh, mm. provisions um, called SNAP. Um, a lot of provisions that specifically relate to um, crop insurance, that's what people think of when they think of the Farm Bill. But we, there were also provisions on food waste that got into the Farm Bill. There are a lot of provisions on research. There, it's just this massive piece of legislation that um, I don't think any single person really understands everything that's in that bill. It's so huge. So yeah. it's actually um, really important. It comes up every five years. Um, we've worked on it for many, many years, and sometimes it has good stuff in it, and sometimes it has bad stuff in it. Um, it's usually a mix. Right. And, you know, last time around, the House passed a horrific bill that was in incredibly partisan and destructive. The Senate negotiated a bipartisan bill that was actually not bad, and it ended up that the Senate bill, something pretty close to the Senate bill, ended up being enacted this time. So we'll see what happens next time. They're starting the debate, I'm sure, very soon on the next farm bill. Right. And there seems to be a lot of conversations right now around appropriations, and everybody's fighting for money for the farm bill programs that were included. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, okay, so let's talk about Roundup. So um, glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, is the most widely used agricultural chemical in history, apparently. Um, there have been multiple lawsuits over the past year where people claiming it caused their cancer have won and been awarded millions of dollars. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up is, you know, that's been kind of dominating the news cycle. There's been a lot of reports about those lawsuits, and you read them and you kind of think like, wow, this is, I mean, this courts are deciding this chemical causes cancer. This is this is not good news for Roundup, right? And and then there was just an article that just came out in the New York Times this past Sunday. I don't know if you saw it. Yeah. It's basically, you know, courts are finding Roundup causes cancer, but it's not going to affect the market. Farmers are going to keep using it no matter what. Um, and I, I want to get your take on that. I want, the one, one thing I want to say before before that is, you know, I, I sort of, it made, the first thing it made me think is like, when we talk about pesticides, I want to be really careful not to make it a conversation where it sounds like, oh, farmers are the enemy because they're, they're spraying this stuff. And, you know, I've talked to so many farmers who talk about how in the 70s when pesticides like Roundup were f finally available, it felt like a godsend. You know, they had seen their parents doing the backbreaking work of farming and they were like, oh my gosh, this is going to make my job easier and I'm going to be able to make money. And, and, you know, it felt like a really valuable tool and then there's sort of this system that you get locked into right <laughs> where it's not just a matter of you either use it or you don't if you're buying the roundup ready seeds and you're spraying roundup you get on this kind of treadmill and it's just not easy i think to to make a different choice um yeah so i think the system is a, is, is a, a really big problem um but i guess my question is will do you think Roundup will go anywhere, even with these lawsuits? Like, do you agree with the premise of the article? Like, is it just going to kind of stick around forever and because of this entrenched system? I think the short answer is to be determined. Mm -hmm. um, the, the fact that we're seeing hundreds of millions of dollars in verdicts uh, come in against um, Bayer, which is the owner now of, right. of Roundup, um, at some point that's going to start hurting the pocketbook. And at some point it's entirely possible that 
um, there will be regulatory action and that the verdicts start mounting so much. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of these lawsuits that are pending. So at some point, I think it could have an impact. We just don't know for sure how long it'll take. Right. Um, but I agree with you that there is sort of a systematic problem that we have. Um, I have farmers in my family. Um, it's You do need to make a, a real commitment to avoid falling into the trap mm-hmm. of this treadmill, as you called it, of having Roundup Ready corn and soybeans, which over 90% of the corn and soybeans sold now um, are. And um, now we're starting to see resistance of some of the weeds to mm-hmm. Roundup. So they're starting to combine Roundup either with dicamba or with 2,4-D, another um, pesticide that it's, we are very concerned about, mm. 2,4-D. Um, so you know, it's, it's like this arms race between right. the pesticides and the weeds, and the weeds always over time are going to win. Um, nature finds a way, as a popular movie once said, right. and I think that's really true, that um, really the only way we're going to actually over the long term solve our problems is by moving towards uh, more regenerative practices, practices where we work with nature on how to control pests rather than constantly using these hard chemicals that eventually um, nature is going to find a way around. Their nature always figures out a way to avoid or to become resistant um, to a lot to these chemicals over time. So I think, you know, if this interview were held 50 years from now, I think probably what would happen, what will have happened is a lot of farmers will have shifted to other methods of farming that will rely less on these hard chemicals fighting against nature and figuring out ways to work with nature. Um, organic farming, I think, is the fastest growing area of agriculture right now. Right. And that's because people want it. And it's also because actually over time, moving in that direction, farming is going to be more effective and less affected by things like climate change right. and by the pest infestations and all of the other problems that come with a monocultural system that is strictly based on use of pesticides and industrial fertilizers. Right. Um, And actually, can you talk a little bit about, you know, I mentioned that the lawsuits uh, related to Roundup are around health risks, which the risk of higher risk of cancer. Um, But what are some of the biggest environmental impacts related to Roundup? Well, we're very concerned about, um, for example, the monarch butterfly. Um, So one of the, you probably are aware of this, but there used to be, when I was a kid, um, this massive migration of monarchs up and down the East Coast. Um, you would see large numbers of monarchs, and they would fly down to Mexico mm-hmm. and reproduce, and then they'd come back up. And that monarch flyway has now decreased more than 90%. It's crazy. And one of the causes, we believe, is that very heavy use, more than a tenfold increase in glyphosate use. Glyphosate kills... Um, the one thing that monarchs absolutely have to have, which is milkweed. And milkweed often grows in between um, agricultural fields, for example, or in the, tr- in the ditches um, along roads, that kind of thing. And a lot of those are now being sprayed with Roundup, mm-hmm. and that kills the milkweed. And unfortunately, monarchs need milkweed um, at a certain stage of their life in order to be able to live. And we're seeing this massive die-off of monarchs, and 
obviously uh, that's another canary in the coal mine or the monarch right. is um, an indicator of the impact of some of these extremely widespread uses of glyphosate that we're worried about the environmental impacts of that. Right. And monarchs um, are pollinators as well, right? They are. Yeah. And, and cause you know, you talking about that made me think about bees and, but most of the, um, pesticides that are talked about in terms of potentially harming bees are more the neonicotinoids. Is that right? right? The neonicotinoids are, yeah. are one of the big sources of, of the bee pro, you know, the die off of bees. Mm-hmm. We're concerned about that a lot. Yeah. Um, and actually I didn't ask you about, um, chlorpyrifos about the environmental, um, impacts of that pesticide. I, I think I saw that it, it's maybe particularly toxic to fish. It is. It's yeah. well. It it's toxic. It attacks the nervous system of pretty much any animal. Okay. Um, so it is very toxic. Certain species, it's more toxic than others. We're concerned about impacts on some endangered species. Um, so, you know, the basic problem is that this stuff is one of the hardest um, chemicals in terms of just like it's like a sledgehammer. Basically, it um, will kill lots of different things, um, not just the insects that it's being uh, targeted to. So it kills a lot of non-target species, as people call it, um, including um, obviously being pretty toxic to kids. Right. And it, and it must um, potentially get into waterways, which is probably where I'm getting that. <laughs> I must right. have read something about, the, about it being toxic to fish because it leaches into mm-hmm. waterways. Yeah. yeah. So, and that actually one of the reasons EPA proposed to ban it was it gets into water and people drink it, mm. um, which is another reason that it's a real risk. Right. So, before we wrap up, um, if people are listening and they're concerned about pesticides in agriculture, what can they do? Well, one thing they can certainly do is pressure and push their legislators to move forward on things like banning the most toxic chemicals like chlorpyrifos and get rid of things like some of these neonics that are very toxic um, to bees, but things like these organophosphates like chlorpyrifos, we really need to get rid of them. And we'd love to see Congress enact something that would ban them since EPA is not going to do anything. So people can certainly talk to their legislators and ask their legislators to get rid of the most toxic insecticides and pesticides. And the other thing people can do is certainly they can change what they buy in the grocery store. So it does make a difference if you purchase organic. Um, That is going to reduce the environmental footprint of what you're eating. And that's one way to vote with your wallet. Right. Actually, um, (laughs) I was already going to, I'm thinking of more questions. I'm going to keep going on a totally different tangent, but I said we were going to wrap up. So, um, I think let's just leave it there. That's such a great place to leave it on where, you know, people can, can actually take some action. Um, thank you, Eric, for being here. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com backslash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.